Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome to the Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman. Bruce, we're having on today one of our all-time favorite podcast guests. Yeah, he always uh, he always delivers. He's uh, I don't know. I feel like he's more than just a college football observer. He's a observer of of all things media. Uh, sometimes he says some things that he probably that I think he probably shouldn't in his own career best interest you know he's on the phone right now you're saying this right in front of him he knows he knows we're talking about our friend john walters of newsweek let's talk notre dame stanford obviously this game is not uh, the heavyweight showdown that we thought it would be before the season i'm wondering as a notre dame fan when you looked at this notre dame team coming into the season and who they had coming back and what their concerns were was it even in your nightmare scenario that they would be two and four at this point no, I didn't think they'd be great, but I didn't think they'd be two and four. Uh, everyone could see where they had so many holes. Um, you, you know, I think before the season, you know, I was doing the RTDB, run the damn ball. You've got, you've got, uh, you know, a, supposedly a solid offensive line, uh, and you have, you know, Josh Adams. You've got Tarian Folston. Dexter Williams wasn't really that much on the radar. Um, you had some un, uh, you know, a lot of unknowns on defense, a lot of unknowns on um, the, the wide receivers. I was, you know, Keith Arnold, our mutual friend, always asks a few of us to rank Notre Dame's football players before the season. I put Elise Jones in my top five. Well, he's not there. That's a tight end they could have used. Um, and I also felt the other weird thing about this team is two of their at least ten best, if not five best players played the same position, uh, a position that you can't have two guys in at the game at the same time. And so that, you know, there were so many holes, you know, we, I'm talking obviously about Malik Zaire and Deshaun Kaiser, but uh, I think the crazy thing, for, especially from last Saturday, was Brian Kelly saying after the game, we knew we couldn't run on this team. And as I, Keith and I got into it this week, why? Like, why couldn't you run on this team? You've got supposedly two first-rounders on your offensive line, uh, you got two returning starting running backs who are both terrific. Um, I don't know. Like they seem to be able to run on on you. I mean, not well, but I, I just didn't understand that. Um, but to answer your question, there was no reason for them to lose to Duke, and there was no reason for them to lose to NC State, uh, and there was no reason for them to be down thirty-six to seven against Michigan State. Well, let's get into the one of the things that's been an issue. Now, when Brian Kelly was a small college coach, he had Brian Van Gorder on his staff. I think it surprised mm-hmm. some people that he ended up bringing him with him to South Bend. Uh, that obviously didn't work. They gave up a ton of big plays. And so mm-hmm. he was in South Bend in August and talked to Brian Van Gorder, who told him, a lot, I'm paraphrasing Stu, that this is a much this is the most talented te- defense he's had, but it's young. Um, mm-hmm. 
where did it all, I mean, is this a Brian Gorder, Van Gorder issue? Was this just a talent issue? I mean, they had more injuries last year than just about anybody with the possible exception of UCLA. Right. Um, right. So where did it all go wrong here? I think it was, you know, I don't think there's one short answer to this. I, first of all, there was no leadership on this defense when the season started. Uh, Sheldon Day wasn't Jalen Smith, but he was a tremendous leader on that defense uh, and made a huge difference, I think, in just the way they approached the game. And then second, of course, you know, you lose your starting safety in Max Redfield. Um, early in the second game, you lose Sean Crawford, who looks like after, you know, if you watch the first you know, six quarters of Notre Dame season, this was their best defensive back. Um, I'm not as much into the day-to-day what Notre Dame is doing in terms of saying, well, Brian Van Gordon made the, the defense too difficult or too, you know, technical, and these guys couldn't think first or had to think too much before they made plays. I, I'm not sure if I want to, like, go down that road. But um, it's just, uh, you know, good teams. Look, look at who's leading the nation in scoring defense. Michigan. They've got some good players, but this is a coach who's been there for two years, uh, not even. So I think it's a mentality that starts from the very top uh, with how you approach the game. And uh, it's no you know, big mystery. Like Stanford's a really tough defensive team when Jim Harbaugh is there, and now Michigan is, is having the same signature way of playing. Um, and what I've seen with Brian Kelly is we're just going to outscore you. Uh, and that didn't that hasn't worked that well this year. I mean, they're they're averaging what I think thirty eight points a game before last weekend. Which it's funny, right before we went on the podcast, I went to und dot com to check out last weekend's stats, and maybe they'd never have the previous Saturday game stats up until Wednesday, but they don't have them up yet. It's almost as if like I was laughing. Maybe they're just trying to like throw that game out statistically too. But um, when you're averaging thirty eight points a game, you shouldn't be two and four. Now, I feel like it's been, I, I don't know when the last time was that Notre Dame fans were completely happy about their coach, maybe <laughs> somewhere in the Lou Holtz era, maybe. But it does feel like this is the season where people have turned on Brian Kelly. I mean, they've turned on him before, definitely stronger now. Um, it's always been a thing where, you know, and I'm, again, Keith and I talked about this. It's not like Brian Kelly needs to pull a Lou Holtz and go and, pray at the grotto at 6 a.m. or anything like that. Um, nobody's saying, at least I'm not saying that. I, you know, you have to give him credit for 2012, and you have to give him credit actually for 2014 for, for at least the first half of that season. And last year they were great. Uh, this is, you know, we, we, we can go, we, we all know these stories. They two plays away basically from being 12-0. and 0. Um, So it's not like he has not been a good coach. It's that this first six games, they have underperformed. And, we're going to talk about Stanford a little bit, and, and as Keith like mentioned to me, hey, Stanford basically got blown out by 30 points two games in a row. The difference is like Notre Dame has been they've lost to teams that aren't that good, um, and I think that they've definitely had way more talent then. And this is you know this is not acceptable at a school like this. It wouldn't be acceptable at Alabama or Michigan or Ohio State. And or USC, so we're going to see how long much longer it's acceptable at Texas. So, uh, you know, it's, it's you can talk about the defense is young. Uh, I think Jerry Tillery, the nose tackle, finally played a really good game on Saturday. I thought the defensive line, if you watch the NC State Notre Dame game and again, like how much do you credit the, the the conditions? But the defensive line played really well. 
Daniel Cage is, is a stud. Uh, they've got, you know, three good down defensive linemen. And Niles Morgan, stepping in this year as a starter, has played really, really well. Um, but a lot of big plays. And reminding me of the 2009 uh, Charlie Weiss team, they play well enough to lose against some poor competition. <laughs> uh, well, that's not a ringing endorsement. <laughs> no, I mean, but that's not saying it's been like this way for Brian Kelly all seven years. This is his seventh year, and... I would say, I'm going to guess, there's never been a seventh-year Notre Dame football coach uh, with four losses. Um, I think maybe Lou Holtz was last year. I believe they may have had four or five. But usually if you get this far down coaching a powerhouse, be Notre Dame or Alabama, you've got the system running because they would have run you out earlier. So that's why this is very much of an anomaly. That's interesting. The example I think of is Bob Stoops, who, for the most part, has you know churned out 10, 11 win seasons, but every so often has a 8-5 and five kind of season, a hiccup, and people get mad, and then he turns it around the next year. Is Brian Kelly in actual danger of losing his job after this season, or is that the kind of periphery, you know, the loud periphery speaking? I don't think so at all, and I really, I really don't. Um, it's, it'd be interesting to watch. I mean, these are, they've got five of six teams they're playing that can legitimately beat them. So worst-case scenario, let's say they go three and nine, uh, it'll be very interesting, especially how it affects recruiting. But I don't think in any way, unless something bizarre happens in terms of his behavior or on-field meltdown or off-field, that he's in any trouble. He and Jack Swarbrick are extremely tight. Um, especially professionally. And I just think that, you know, this is, they, they've got to turn this around. Um, and I don't think Brian Kelly needs to change who he is because that's not genuine. I just think they need to execute better. And uh, they've got maybe a gift horse coming in this Saturday, depending on what David Shaw decides to do with Christian McCaffrey on Friday or Saturday night. Cause I've, uh, my second favorite team to watch is Stanford, and I've watched as many Stanford games. I've watched all of the last three Stanford games this year, and that is just more of a ghost of a team from the previous season than, than Notre Dame is. Uh, a couple of things. First, uh, I looked it up towards your Lou Holtz thing. And actually, in year nine, he went 6-5-1. and one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Somehow they played a Fiesta Bowl. That right. <laughs> Those were the good old days. Anybody who complains about the bowl system now should know that in 1994, you could go Notre Dame could go 6-5-1 and, and go and play in a what is now considered a BCS bowl. Bruce, I want to get into Stanford uh, with John. You mentioned that Stanford is the team you watch the next most, and I agree with you. It's been a it's been a puzzling last two games where this team has does not look at all like it did last year or frankly at any point in the David Shaw era. And I saw you wrote a story for Newsweek. Have we already seen peak Christian McCaffrey? It's an interesting thing in college football where a guy can be a complete superstar like he became last year and everybody jaw-dropping. First game of the season, he had that 97-yard kick return called back. Everybody was going crazy about that. You have two bad games. You know, you're forgotten. We're done with you. What happens from here? I think, you know, you're right there. Uh, I couldn't love any player more than I love Christian McCaffrey. He's to me, they're like the reincarnation of Reggie Bush, we all were wowed by uh, as a collegian. Uh, he has not been effective in the last three games. He has not scored a touchdown. He had pretty good yardage against UCLA. And, and again, it's not him. I think there's a couple things going on here that you already know. Like 
They don't have a, a deep threat. That Awusa has gone. Their offensive line is new. This is a team that usually relies on a tight end, and they don't have one this year that they can rely on. And finally, you know, there's no uh, obligation for college coaches to be honest with anyone about how badly a player is banged up because they can cite student confidentiality law. So we don't know uh, what is actually wrong with Christian McCaffrey, and we're not about to learn that. And uh, that was the game. When they took him out of the game last Saturday, as you guys were watching, the game was still in doubt. So he was hurt, like you know? And I don't know how badly hurt because we saw him like jog back to the locker room. But then it comes down to like what what what's his you know what's his injury and why are they leaving leaving until Friday? Um, but if there was ever time, you know, he is out of being asked to shoulder so much more of the load this season behind an offensive line that is nowhere near what it's been the past few years, and with a first year starter quarterback. Um, so there's just a lot on his shoulders, and and he's a great you know great kid, great player. There was one run against Washington State late in the first quarter where he looked vintage McCaffrey, which went for 23 yards. But you take away that run, he's got 12 yards on seven carries besides that. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. He's not even in the top 20 in rushing. Uh, mm-hmm. And for the offensive line, as you alluded to, and this is, a little, this is not just the offensive line, but it's a big part of it, they've allowed mm-hmm. 12 sacks in the last two weeks against the two Washington schools. Right. They're just not uh-huh. the same team this year. And, and – what was interesting is, you know, how did the year begin? New Year's Day, the Rose Bowl, that was, you know, like, it's just, that was his magnum, you know, opus. That was just this beautiful performance that he gave, starting from the very first play of the game. And unfortunately, I don't know, I, you know, there's a, there's a chance we'll see it this weekend. There's a chance we'll never see it again. As of today, Wednesday, I, I don't have any idea. I don't know if you guys have any idea. No, and I will say this. If he got hurt, he pre- maybe he got hurt in the Washington game because I felt like in the Washington game, he didn't have anywhere to run and he was getting every yard he possibly could. Uh, you know, whereas Washington State, it did feel like he couldn't, nobody could do anything. The offensive line couldn't block, he couldn't do anything. Then at some point he left the game. You know, I do think that the rest of the team is letting him down. I don't think he's become a worse running back. And in fact, his, his productivity for the first few games was on par with last season. So this was Christian McCaffrey's, you know, close up for the Heisman mid season, primetime NBC game. Uh, and now it's not that we don't know if he's going to play and Notre Dame really needs this game. Definitely in my opinion, more than Stanford does. So that's going to be, you know, they're, they're coming in, not like with that, the typical Notre Dame feeling of, Oh, we're going to lose something like they need to to get something. Um, and they're the hunter this week, in my opinion, where they're so used to being the hunted. And that's what's going to be really fascinating about this. Uh, John, the shift gears a little bit. So we were talking Christian McCaffrey. He was the guy that I think Stu and I, I know I did, I assume Stu did, voted to you know as the number one Heisman guy last year. Uh, mm-hmm. Going forward, the way I look at the Heisman right now is I think it is Lamar Jackson's to lose. And that means he would need like a four turnover game or some, you know, right now, I don't think somebody's going to be able to overtake him. Um, where do you guys both come down on that? I mean, I, I look at it. We, Jake Browning is my number two guy. I just mm-hmm. don't know if Browning, realistically, knowing the Heisman electorate as it is, I don't think there's going to be enough people who know who Jake Browning is or are going to be sold on what he does, even if he has like a 38 to 3 TD to interception ratio. 
I agree with everything you just said. I think it's Lamar Jackson's uh, race to to you know lose. I the Houston loss hurts him a little bit because this is not as big a game now. But if they're still a one loss team, you know, coming into that game, and if his numbers are still, I mean, he's the most spectacular player to watch this year, right? I mean, I've just been wonderful to watch. Uh, I think Deshaun Watson is getting a little too much credit at this point in the season. Not that he's not playing well, but, I mean, I'm looking around, and, and I've really loved watching Trevor Knight at A&M and, and playing in big games, doing what he's doing. Um, I'm not saying he's the Heisman guy, or maybe, but I, that he's, no, he's not on anybody's top five list, and I'm a little bit curious about that. Um, and Dalvin Cook, man, like that guy is just, I don't even try, to me, throw away the numbers, He's just a stud when it matters. You don't have to throw away the numbers. His People don't seem to realize his numbers are through the roof, even after the bad game against Louisville. I'm with you. I don't know how Lamar Jackson, if he just keeps doing what he does, doesn't win the votes. I'm with you on Jake Browning because he's been terrific. But who is Washington playing? You know, There's two Pac-12 teams in the top 25, and the other one is in the 20s, Utah. And Washington gets them. So maybe, But they're, they're not playing. They didn't play anybody. Before this, the Pac-12 season, the schedule started. That was a you know prominent team, um, and they're not going to have. He's not going to get that marquee game. He already had it. Um, so I'm with you. Like if Christian McCaffrey couldn't win it last year, I don't see how Jake Browning does. But the last thing I'll say on this is, it's setting up really well for Jabril Peppers. If you're ever going to have another defensive guy win, from, by the way, from the same school, if Lamar Jackson falters and Michigan is still number one in the nation in defense. And they beat Ohio State. They have a coach who seems to know how to manipulate the media okay. You think? So, <laughs> <laughs> so don't – that's my dark horse right now. Yeah, I mean it sets up similarly to Charles Woodson in that it's he's not just defense. And it would come down to the Ohio State game. If he beats Ohio State, then he would have another game after that. John, let's address the important things since you brought up Harbaugh. Where do you stand on drinking milk with steak? Does that completely offend you? As you guys know, I mean, I'm a not very long ago former steakhouse professional. Um, <laughs> that was never ordered. I'm not against it. I'm just saying I've never seen it happen. If somebody had ordered, asked you for a glass of milk, was that available? That was completely available, yeah. sure. Uh, it's just, you know, as we all know, if you're, if you're taking down an 18 to 24 ounce steak, you've got to leave as much room as possible in in that stomach of yours and and the milk is going to like just fill it up I, that's why i would stay away from it I, I don't even drink a beer with a steak because you know it's red wine or nothing um you don't want to be I, I i'm i'm curious if he actually drank that or that was a, a prop myself somebody i don't i cannot confirm this but somebody said on twitter that he ha- he endorses a milk company there so it may have been a prop um, real quick, want to throw a stat out there based on something we were just talking about. It's going to blow your guys' mind. Well, it's like a blow your mind. It might surprise you. National all-purpose leaders right now. Number one, Donnell Pumphrey from San Diego State, who's the nation's leading rusher. Number two, Dalvin Cook. Number three, in the country, still, Christian McCaffrey. Wow. Even after rushing for 49 two weeks ago and 35 the other day. I mean, yeah. So... It, that's that's pretty wild. And Donnell Pumphrey, no one's talking about. He's the Marshall Falk of, of current era. Now, what, yes. what Stu didn't tell you, though, was he is averaging <laughs> almost 100 yards a game less than he did last year. He's at 188, was at mm-hmm. 276 last year. He led it by almost 
75 yards last year. And the two guys ahead of him are doing it with zero return yards, whereas McCaffrey has 251 kick return, well, just 16 punts. So kick returns are a big factor. And by the way, when you're when you're giving up 40-something points a game, they, they kick off to you a lot. Right. And one last thing on, on stats that I find, always find interesting. So, you know, rightly so, Notre Dame has gotten blasted on how bad their defense is, right? And people love to blast when your defense is poor. In the last three games, Stanford has three offensive touchdowns, two of which were scored in the last 30 seconds of the game. There's only They haven't scored a touchdown in the first half in three games. And, and so that's like when your offense is that anemic, you don't seem to hear the same thing as like, the way Charlie Strong is taking heat in Texas for their defense, uh, and, and the way that you know Brian Van Gorder lost his job over this, like I'm always interested or curious about that. Like bad defense gets way more, you know, heat in the in the media than bad offense does. Um, Will Muschamp may beg to differ. I feel, that was four years of articles citing the hundred something ranked offense, but I would agree in general. Yeah. What is pissing you off these days on social media? This is kind of a oh. question. <laughs> See, this is great, everybody. If you've never listened to us, Bruce waits and gets this. Like, he just knows. He knows where to hit me. As you guys know, I spend way too much time on Twitter. And I, I would say, like, the one thing I would ask anybody tweeting is, if you're going to tweet at somebody like Stuart or Bruce or even me, who doesn't have as many followers, just make sure, like, if you're going to correct us, that you have your facts right. Because I don't mind when somebody corrects me, but I do mind when someone doesn't actually read what I wrote and then tells me how I'm wrong. And then you're sort of like, like, do I want to bother with this? Do I want I am. I'm frequently wrong, and I think that's totally cool if you correct me. But when you, when you say, like, well, you didn't think about this, and that, that's, like, my little pet peeve. And maybe I should just ignore those tweets. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? You just got to not engage on those. You know, Bruce works very closely with a media personality who every week goes on a Twitter tirade and then says, I'm done. I, this is the last time I'm ever going to interact with a fan on Twitter. And then next week, he's right back at it. Are you speaking of, of my friend Spencer Tillman? Is that the one you're referring no, to? No, 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 no. We're talking about our good friend Tim Brando. Uh, yeah. yeah, Tim. I can see that happening with Tim. Um, really? All right, I'm at a light today, and I saw Tim going off on a mini rant, and I would call it mini because there was less exclamation points than others, but I wanted to say, and Tim's listening to this at some point, I wanted to say, Tim, back away from the phone, back away from the phone, <laughs> go play with your granddaughter, um, mm-hmm. you know, like, because I know how passionate he is, and I know our car rides to the stadium are very entertaining. He knows he's kind of in on the joke where he he knows I'm being Tim. Sometimes I think he plays it up, but I think we're all kind of, to some degree, have to monitor that. You know, like just like hey, mm-hmm. we're gonna be. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I have started to send a DM to somebody or something, even if it's joking. I'm like, why am I doing this? It's like, <laughs> like either gonna get involved in like a back and forth. That's not mean spirited, but it's just like it's just not worth. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not saying it's not worth the time. It's just like, where's this going to go kind of thing. No, I agree. I agree. Uh, and, yeah. So, I mean, there's there's so much to be learned about being on Twitter, and that's a, obviously do a whole other podcast about that, I guess, if you wanted. Um, outside of, of being a New Yorker and the, the 
as you guys are both former New Yorkers, I'd say my only real pet peeve currently is we have an explosion of bicycles in Manhattan now that did not exist when you guys were here. And it's wonderful. And I'm a, I bike every day. And I would just say anyone listening here on, on our podcast who's involved with this, just obey the laws when you're riding your bike. That's all I ask. Just, you know, go the right way in the lane, Alec Baldwin, because that's actually a real thing here going on now in New York. We have people getting hurt and killed and stuff. With, with we and I was talking to a European about this, and he said, "Well, you're going to need about 250 accidents before people start taking it seriously." And I just don't want to be one of those 250. A light bulb just went off in my head, John. You are the 2010s Jerry Seinfeld that we need. <laughs> Everything that is a Seinfeld plot, if I've ever heard one. And I feel like we could make at least one season out of because that's basically like at the gist that the core of Seinfeld was all of his beefs with. Society in New York in particular. I identify much more with Larry David. Okay, on that note. John, tell the people listening how they can find your work. I have Newsweek. I write for Newsweek full-time. And then if anybody's interested, I, I do a little daily blog called MediumHappy.com. And on Twitter, at JDubs88, 1D1B. So JDUBS88. Back up the blog. The blog is good. I usually look at it. It's very easy it's unfortunately John's a, a creature of the 80s so you'll get some real you know, <laughs> you know I saw the name Susan Anton appear on my Twitter feed and I was like you know it's just, you haven't thought of it well, the most time. the most beautiful part of the blog is everybody knows I'm a huge 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 almost famous fan and mm-hmm. uh, one of John's regular features is called it's all happening it's all happening and uh, uh, you myself I'm sure many others including Bruce but Brian Hamilton and I, we all just love and quote that movie all the time. So that's where it's all happening comes from, definitely. My Twitter bio says, honest and unmerciful. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Anyway, um, I try to like remind people that the world did not start the day ESPN began broadcasting. So, anyway, uh, it's, like I said, I think that uh, the Miami-Notre Dame game, October 29th, is going to be fascinating not just for oh and one last plug here not just for the you know the the game and the reunion but there's a great uh guy who went to Notre Dame named Pat Walsh and he was a friend of mine there and when this whole uh, Catholics versus convicts 30 for 30 comes out um his stories are going to be incredibly entertaining to listen to and that's sort of a, a bygone era of Notre Dame which sadly I don't think exists anymore all right, well, during commercial breaks of Ohio State, Wisconsin, you'll be tuning in to Notre Dame Stanford, and uh, all this analysis that we gave you today will come in handy. John, thanks so much for coming on. Guys, thanks for having me. I really always enjoyed so much, and uh, great talking to you both. Always great talking to John, and we are going to get to your emails here in a minute, but first, let's tell you about two great sponsors this week. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans proudly supports the Audible. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage approval process into the 21st century. Fast, powerful, and completely online, Rocket Mortgage has taken all the complicated, time-consuming parts of applying for a mortgage out of the equation. Hate searching through stacks of old files and paperwork? With Rocket Mortgage, you can easily share your bank statements and pay stubs at the touch of a button, helping you get approved in minutes for a custom mortgage solution that's been tailored to your unique financial situation. And even better, with Rocket Mortgage, you can do all of this on your phone or tablet. It's a quick online process that you can manage from the convenience of your couch. So, if you're looking to refinance your mortgage or buy a home, 
Check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com slash audible. Okay, Stu, I got a question for you. Have you ever lost or even thought you lost your cell phone? All the time. Yeah, well, that's a pretty awful experience. Even if you found it in five minutes, if you're like me, your life is on that phone. I don't know if I would say my life is on the phone, but you got a lot of information on there, and identity thieves know that too. And when you, lost your, when you have your lost phone wind up in the hands of an identity thief, it can be the beginning of a disaster. Financially, emotionally, even physically, Stu. That could take years to unwind. By the way, if I lost my phone, I could just see you know, the person rattling through and all of a sudden Herb Hand is going to get some prank phone calls or whoever else is locked in. Uh, you probably have some pretty big names in there that they would be really excited to, uh, to call. Yeah, so you can help yourself with Identity Guard. With Identity Guard, you get protection from a company that's been in business for over 20 years. Ironically enough, that's even longer than I've had cell phones. So um, I guess they've moved into a different business. One that's helped protect more than 47 million people. Identity Guard continuously monitors millions of transactions and articles and sends you the news, tools, and guidance you need to minimize your risk. Plus, if you were to become a victim of identity theft, Identity Guard's victim recovery specialists will be there to help you through the recovery process. Identity Guard even offers identity theft insurance, which coverage goes up to $1 million. So get the identity theft protection service that's right for you. Visit Identity Guard at IdentityGuard.com backslash podcast. That's IdentityGuard.com backslash podcast. And now, hit it, Rob Stone. It's the mailbag from a computer. So not literally a bag, but just mail. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Our first one this week comes to us from James Birdsong. Bruce and Stu had a quick question regarding the LSU Florida situation. Do football programs not have a backup plan if the home stadium can't host for their upcoming scheduled home game? I find it hard to believe that the Florida Athletic Department, especially someone as accomplished as Jeremy Foley, didn't have a contingency plan for a situation such as this. Florida football is a multi-multi-million dollar business for the university. Jim McElwain's annual salary is $4.25 million a year. And going forward, do you see the SEC and other Power 5 conferences teams making some sort of rule to prevent this from ever happening again? You know, I think each situation is very unique, and that, that has created some of the problems here. You know, when the weather is coming through, what the schedule setup is. You know, ultimately, I would have thought that, and this is where it gets into, it seemed to be a gray area, what can the conference commissioner do to take over a situation when you have two ADs or two schools that seem to be at odds because they're protecting their own, their own self-interest? I mean, what do you think is the right thing to do here? Well, I mean, first of all, to answer his question, no, I don't think most schools have contingency plans for every single home game in, in, you know, in the event of a hurricane or another uh, natural disaster. I don't know how practical it would be to, I mean, what would, the, what would a realistic contingency plan be? It would be to have another venue on hold, I suppose. But that, I mean, I can't imagine how much that costs to say, um, hey, uh, Jacksonville Jaguar Stadium, can you 
keep the keep that date open for us in case we need it. You know that they wouldn't do that for free. So uh, I would imagine. I mean, I would be curious to know if Miami does, just because I feel like they get affected a lot. Uh, Are they going to play at FIU? I mean, FIU is that stadium. I don't think that's. I mean, Miami doesn't even have you know, very many options there to begin with. I mean, that's part of the reason why they're playing at what used to be pro player stadium 20 miles away. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course LSU has dealt with this a lot, but, uh, and then in terms of the second question, I guarantee you, this has become such a drama at the, in the sec conference. I guarantee you that next year, next spring in Destin, when all the coaches and, and ADs and, and media get together, this will probably be at or near the top of the list of agenda items. And I have no doubt that they will institute some sort of policy next year that gives the commissioner leeway to, and by the way, I found out since last time it was Greg Sankey's call to postpone the game. It wasn't necessarily his call to then not play it on Sunday or not play it in Baton Rouge, that he would either have more authority in that regard or just something in writing that says that the schools will, do you know whatever in their power to reschedule the game within a certain amount of time? There's no way. I mean, this will definitely cause some sort of policy change. Whether it does for other conferences, I don't know. But this has become, um, frankly, one of the more divisive issues I've seen in the SEC in a long time. Maybe since Cam Newton. I mean, that that really rubbed a lot of people the wrong way in the conference. But probably forgetting something in between. But uh, they've certainly spent a lot of time debating eight, nine game schedules. But I don't feel like that was cause as much finger pointing as this has i definitely agree um because it affects so many people here and teams uh this question is from matthew ryan bruce and Stu love the podcast especially Stu's profanity does something that is not what it says (laughs) (laughs) okay especially my profanity does something need to be done about the length of games granted it was a two overtime game but four hours and 43 minutes for A&M Tennessee was ridiculous. I actually thought it was longer than that, um, but I'm sure he's right. Uh, the hurry-up is now common, and the season has creeped up to 15 games. Clemson ran 1,207 plays on offense last year. The Broncos ran 1,200. How about the clock stops on first downs only in the last two minutes of each half so amateur athletes aren't playing like professionals? That's an interesting angle he he brought to it uh, that I hadn't really thought of the cumulative effect of all those extra plays and I you know that came up right I mean Brett Bielema took so much flack a few years ago for suggesting and Nick Saban for suggesting that they should do something to slow down the hurry up offenses because everybody assumed they were doing it out of self interest the ironic thing of course is that now Nick Saban gets as much uh, advantage out of it as anybody um, so. But they both insisted that it was safety issues. And in fact, now that I think about it, it was Saban who was always citing plays per game stats. And, and when he would talk about it, he ha- he knew exactly how many plays per game the NFL was running versus college. And, you know, the fact that the more of these plays you run over the course of a season, the more chance you're going to have for injuries. And by the way, that A&M Tennessee game, one of the reasons it was so long is it seemed like they were constantly taking injury, you know, having to pause for injuries. Um, so there is no easy answer for this. I don't know if you have one, but, uh, you know, the, the, the ironic thing is that offenses moving faster has slowed the game down. More first downs, more stoppages, more scoring, more commercial breaks. And by the way, the commercial breaks that everybody complains about, those aren't going anywhere because 
it costs the networks billions of dollars to buy the rights to these games in the first place, so they have to pay for that somehow. Do you have any good solutions? No, I, I actually think Matthew had a, one that was decent, but I've I got to be honest. Um, it doesn't bother me. It really doesn't. I mean, I, you know, the crazy thing is comparing it to NFL is one thing. I mean, it's almost like twice as long as a college basketball game now. But, again, I mean, I love college football. It doesn't really bother me if it's a well – I mean, I thought the, the game was great. The only – I mean, talking about the Tennessee A&M game, I thought it was a lot of drama. I thought it was riveting. The only part I didn't like was because I had to go down to the sidelines and work on my own game, so I didn't get to see the last, you know, I guess the overtime part of it. But uh, am I in the minority? Does it bother you? I mean, it doesn't impact you and me the way it does – I mean, you and I, are, we're going to watch the games regardless. We're going to, you know, it's our job. But for, you know, if it wasn't my job, and, if, oh, and let's use you as an example. You have two-year-old uh, children, and if you if this wasn't your job to cover college football for a living, I assume you would have a lot of obligations on a Saturday um, with the kids. And so it's hard to say to, say to your wife or whoever, I've got to set aside four and a half hours Saturday in case the game goes that long. I would also say it negatively impacts the people at the game who spend all that dead time, you know, sitting there. Um, or delays how, you know, if it's a night game, how late they get out of there and so on and so forth. So, no, I, I think um, it's never going to be as compact as the NFL, which always seems to be able to just pull it off in exactly three hours or just a little bit over that. But... The trend, I mean, it's gone up by an average of 15 minutes just since 2008. That was a Wall Street Journal had that stat. And I think even that doesn't tell the full picture because that's all games. That includes games that aren't even on television or, you know, are on some smaller network that doesn't show a lot of commercials. Like we said with John, I, th- I think if you were to do that study of the main games of the week, it would be even, the average would have gone up even more than that. Okay. Next up, this is from Ed McAvoy. Stuart and Bruce, with OU Texas in the rear view, can you rank the neutral site rivalry games? As a side note, does a neutral site enhance or inhibit a rivalry? That's a great question. I don't think it's uh, one size fits all. I mean, I think it's great that Michigan and Ohio State play those games in their respective stadiums. I don't think that diminishes it in any way, and I it probably enhances it. But at the same time, I mean, it's hard for me to picture OU Texas in Austin like that to me the the state fair and the cotton bowl is it's just so synonymous with that rivalry Florida Georgia uh, in Jacksonville is an event it is an annual event that the fans you know plan around OU Texas would be number one I'm, I'm actually struggling off the top of my head to think of too many others that are played at a neutral site yeah I mean obviously Alabama and Auburn used to be years and years ago um I don't know. To me, because it's around the state fair, I think that's a big part of why OU and Texas. And you had, you know, you had the great rivalry um, with Daryl Royal, and you know, you've had some, you know, Barry Switzer, and there's just um, the there's just a lot of it. I think is just very unique, and it just feels feels different than it, than than any other game. You know, when I see these kind of neutral site things, my first thought is, well, they're going to play a game in Jerry World or whatever, where it's 
you know, it's an awesome venue, but it still kind of feels antiseptic. Yeah, Missouri and Illinois used to play every year in the uh, Dome in St. Louis, and I covered it one year when, you know, like the Chase Daniel team, and just no atmosphere, none. Um, Scott Carey, Bruce and Stewart, you guys mentioned on the podcast earlier this week, there's going to be some coaching changes in the Mountain West this year. Not to add to this year's fad of coaching firing speculation, but what are the chances that Nevada makes a change this year? I mean, I don't think they will. Like, you know, Brian Pulliam had it in a bowl game last year. That's not an easy job because you take over Chris Alt's program and he's still kind of lingering around. I mean, I think there's a lot of parts of it. I mean, they're three and three. It's not like, you know, they're all in six or anything. Um, you know, the, the places, you know, I look at it now, I mean, you have two programs, or certainly, you know, Boise State. I think quietly Craig Bowl, who had all that success at North Dakota State, has done a nice job with Wyoming. I mean, they're four and two. Um, one of the guys who I thought would have, you know, had been one of the rising stars in coaching is Matt Wells, and now Utah State is struggling. They're two and four. Um, you know, the, the, the ones that I could see maybe making changes here, I mean, we mentioned Tim DeRuder at Fresno. Um, you know, I don't know. Maybe San Jose State might make a change. I'm not sure how high the expectations are there at this point. But, I, I mean, I don't see Nevada. You know, when you look at what Polian has left on their schedule, they have San Jose State. It's on the road, but they're, they're struggling. I could see them winning that game. They play New Mexico. That should be a toss-up game. Utah State has struggled, and then they go to UNLV. I mean, he can easily get three wins out of that. And that, my friends, is the most in-depth Mountain West coaching carousel update you're going to find in the sports media world. Next up, Georgia Tech alum here. I heard you guys talking on the podcast about how Paul Johnson might be on the hot seat at Georgia Tech. I just don't see where there is an instant upgrade available. I have enough perspective to realize that Georgia Tech is not a destination job. So the choices are either to keep Johnson until he retires. I don't think he's going to go to another school. I, am, I agree with you on that. Uh, and hopefully make the right hire on the next unknown guru coach and hope he doesn't jump ship to the SEC after a successful season. Honestly, like the current situation, very much Iowa. A few great years sprinkled in between middling years. And when Johnson retires, we can just hire the Navy coach again. The thing that I've always heard from guys I know in the business is they think Georgia Tech's a really good job because there's so many players in and around Atlanta, and the facilities are pretty good. Education you can sell is very good. There's a lot to like. Now, that's not to say that you know, anybody who's coached there is underachieved. They just think it's you – know, I remember hearing a few years ago when Chad Morris was at Clemson that there were a lot of people who thought he would end up there and he would kill it because he's, he was really well thought of and, you know, down there and – you know, had a lot of success, I'm certainly at Clemson with that offense, and it would be just a, a different pace. Now, it's not like Chad Morris has lit it up at SMU. They were really bad. He's made some improvements, but I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, Paul Johnson's had a couple great seasons. There's no question about that. You know, in fact, just two years ago, uh, 11 wins, beat, beat Dak Prescott in the Orange Bowl. So, you know, it does seem like a long time ago now, the way that they've played the last two seasons, but... Yeah, I mean, that's a bit of a defeatist email there from our Georgia Tech friends. You know, when I lived there in the late 90s and early 2000s, George O'Leary was the coach. And I, I don't know if anybody would consider George O'Leary to even then have been a you know, rising savant type coach, um, just a good, solid football coach. And I don't know that he even had necessarily these peaks, but they were pretty solidly good. 
Joe Hamilton was a Heisman runner-up. And there was just a lot more buzz around that program, a lot more electricity. They'd fill the stadium or mostly fill the stadium. Um, I don't feel that now. I feel no enthusiasm for Georgia Tech football. I don't know if it's the style that that, that, that triple option style bores the fans or, or what. You know, they haven't really had any... When's the last time Georgia Tech had what you would consider to be a star player? Demarius Thomas? Yeah, I don't even know if I would say that. I mean, I know we put up big yard, you know, yards per catch numbers. God, that's a good question. Think about that for a second. Every school has star players come through every couple years, and we are both struggling to name the last. I'm not going all the way back to Calvin Johnson. I think we're missing somebody if we try to do that. But there's no cause for excitement around that program. So... I'm not saying go out and fire Paul Johnson tomorrow. Let's see how the season plays out. But I do think they can do better than he's giving them credit for. Yeah, I mean, I think when I you know, kind of take issue with the star player thing, I mean, it's weird. Cause some of the guys that, you know, I remember, like I actually thought Justin Thomas was going to be a, a bigger player than he's been. You know, he had such a really good start. He's, he's a dynamic player, uh, you know, for that offense. But, they, you know, they struggled so much last year. You know, I hate to say it, but one of the guys I remember, and this is certainly not a star player, was like Adam Gotsis, but he was a good player, but he's not, you know, Shaq Mason. I'm I'm trying to think. Uh, it's more recent than I thought. The most recent were Michael Johnson in 2008, Derek Morgan in 2009, and I got to be honest, I do not remember this guy, and I feel bad, Shaquille Mason in 2014. That's Shaq Mason. That's what I just mentioned. So their offensive lineman was their most decorated player in the last six, seven years. Look, all this is a long way of saying that I think maybe that program could use a little bit of a, of a spark. But I will say this, definite upgrade from Chan Gailey, who is also on one of those worst coaches lists of mine at some point. Can I do a, a little uh, a little quiz, stew right now? Mm-hmm. Can you name for me, and hopefully you haven't stumbled upon this in your own findings, who their last first-round pick was? Wait, I just want to say I just thought of one of their most recent stars, Jonathan Dwyer, the running back, who was there uh, kind of at the same time as C.J. Spiller was at Clemson. He was he was really good. Um, last first-round draft pick, is it going to be some position that I wouldn't think of? No. Is it Calvin Johnson? No, it's not that far back. Both guys we've mentioned, Derek Morgan Sr. By the way, that really good defensive back I couldn't think of, uh, that was in 2010 off. That was Morgan Burnett. Morgan Burnett was really good, but like you just said, 2010. How about that? We just devoted a huge chunk of the podcast to Georgia Tech football, and uh, now we're going to end with an update on your Kyle Whittingham interview where he accused uh, Arizona of disconcerting signals, of trying to throw off the snap count, and we talked about how often does this happen. Derek Johnson says, Stu and Bruce, in regards to your discussion of snap count simulation by the Arizona D. I have observed two Nebraska opponents do the same thing, Michigan State and Purdue. Former Nebraska GA Joe Gann said that Purdue tried to do that in 2014. Thanks. Enjoy the pod. I can definitely remember watching a couple games where they did call disconcerting signals, and I remember thinking that was an awfully unusual phrase for a college football penalty. Yeah, I mean, look, I think it. You know, a lot of times when defensive lines are are basically doing their line stunts. It's a go call as well, and maybe that's what changed. I, a lot of people, when they saw, um, when I posted the interview with, with Whittingham, a lot of, and they, I think they were just Arizona fans, or maybe they were BYU fans going, well, why didn't he change his offensive line call then? And eventually they did. 
So we never mentioned this, but Bruce is on the phone, not because he's in some far-flung locale, but because we can't get his Skype to work. Um, we are going to have to come up with a solution before next week's podcast because we obviously want this to sound better. So, uh, But thankfully, we have our new ace producer, Lindsay, and she is on it. She is in the middle of this podcast. She's already sending emails about possible solutions. So we will have that address for next week. And as always... If you enjoy the Audible, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We'll see you next week.